Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, July 8th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, imploring you to go to commentary.org and subscribe. Our July-August issue is there with untold wonders and glories. And it's time you did so to help support our efforts here, as well as the brilliant material we try to supply you with every month and every day, not only on the podcast, but on the website, uh, daily blog items. So please subscribe at www.commentary.org. You owe it to us because we're giving you a lot of free entertainment here and it shouldn't be free. So how's that for guilt? With me as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen out today. We'll be back next week. Quick programming note. We will be off next Thursday, Friday, and Monday. No podcasts. We will be back. So we're doing Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week. And then we will be back the Tuesday of the following week, the 19th, I believe. Uh, so that's our, that's our summer vacation. Anyway, horrible news out of Japan. The assassination of former Prime Minister uh, Shinzo Abe. Um, I was struck by this fact. You're, we're hearing a lot of stuff in the wake of it. You know, there have only been there were only like two gun murders in Japan in all of 2021. So here we have another one, and it's a assassination of a of 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 the most important uh, political leader of the last 15 years in Japan. And I was struck by the fact that um, we keep talking about copycatting in relation to mass shootings. Uh, but when I was growing up and really through uh, the early 80s, uh, before the mass shootings thing became a big thing, assassinations were a thing and they were a copycat thing. I mean, think about, you know, 1968, right? We had, we had, uh, uh, Martin Luther King and uh, Bobby Kennedy. And then in 72, we had George Wallace, two assassination attempts made on Gerald Ford's life, uh, Reagan and the Pope in 1981, both of whom, of course, narrowly survived. And then it all seemed to kind of um, end uh the sort of the, the the assassination frenzy kind of ended and then it's 40 years later and uh the question that's raised by this is are we going to see a wave of assassination attempts in the wake of of abe's assassination it's a dark thing to think about but uh that's what immediately came to my mind uh well, we Anybody did have one have... attempted assassination uh, attempt uh, here uh, of a Supreme Court justice uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It was probably never going to be successful. It was, it was, there was a significant amount of planning that went into it, but not, a, not enough forethought to actually carry it out. Nevertheless, the intent was there and the sentiment is abroad. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we probably are going to see more attempts on the lives of major public figures for political reasons. I don't think we can extrapolate <clears throat> whatever the motive was for this individual, um, w whether that motive matters or not. Um, we certainly can't you know, impose it on the United States, but there is a, it's getting hot out there for sure. Yeah, I mean, something I've, I wondered about in the wake of this was, um, is this, does this already have something of the copycat element to it? Um, not directly, because uh, there haven't been uh, assassination attempts over here recently, except for the one uh, Noah just mentioned. But I mean, uh, sort of copying the the general idea of public gun violence um, and the way that's broadcast uh, everywhere now. I mean, I, I was reminded of the the Norway 2011 Norway shooter. Uh, back then, there was some talk of of his his having there was some influence on him of american uh uh extremists or from from american voices and and whatnot so I, I i don't know but i think you know john something you you talk about a lot is is 
the return of all these terrible things from the 70s right so on and and is, is this yet another one yeah. should add and i had forgotten that the the um president of haiti was assassinated a year ago that's right that's right but but that but so what we know about assassination is, is of course the oldest political crime in the book assassination is how you how you change leaders in an authoritarian uh system uh or you know certainly or you know we know of course about caesar's assassination uh which we made jokey allusion to yesterday with andrew roberts but um so assassination is a was a is a form of governmental change in certain systems or has you know pre-modern systems um what was striking about the american assassination go-rounds is that um uh some of them were political but it's very hard to discern the politics in some ways uh obviously lee harvey oswald was a communist who had lived in cuba married a, a russian national um lived in uh, russia lived in russia was part of the fair play for cuba committee um but we but but what and how and how it happened that he should have done this remains lost to history and his own uh death at the hands of jack ruby sirhan sirhan who assassinated robert f kennedy jr you know robert f kennedy was a palestinian activist uh seeking to you know highlight the cause of injustice to the palestinians um he is still alive uh sirhan but then you had all these strange kind of weirdly apol like uh it's not clear who james earl ray was it's not clear why arthur bremer shot wallace it wasn't some you know bleat against wallace's uh racism the manson family uh women who tried to assassinate gerald ford were obviously motivated by psychosis as was uh um john hinckley uh you know seeking to get the attention of jody foster mehmet aja who assassinate who tried to assassinate the pope was doing so as he was a muslim extremist but mark david chapman who assassinated john lennon not a political leader but obviously essentially an assassination uh was doing so because he was receiving messages from catcher in the rye so there's a lot there's far less of the kind of actual political assassination frame than was the case in the in the you know sort of pre-world war ii era you know the assassination of archduke franz ferdinand which actually sort of started the first world war serbian nationalist uh the assassination of alexander ii in uh in 1881 in russia all of 1932 in japan I mean, then yeah. literally government by assassination. Right. So you so what's what's interesting here will be to see what his motivations were. And was he psychotic or was this political? Um, somehow, as I say, the, the 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 assassination frenzy that really began with with John F. Kennedy in 1963 and kind of ended uh, in 81 um obviously there are little bits of things in the congressional softball game and uh you know people do try to try to do it uh we have set up an entire government agency gabby giffords gabby giffords also biased by 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 a paranoid schizophrenic who said that you know who was worried about grammar and language um anyway it's it's a horrible, horrible thing. And on the other hand, it is one of the oldest things in the book. You know, I mean, there is there is nothing like I say, dates, you know, the most famous assassination probably in history was Caesar's was, uh, you know, done by his by his close aides. Um, uh, and regicides are, you know, the subject of Macbeth and whatever. So, uh, and of course, the, the plot of uh, War and Peace centers on Pierre, a uh, part of the plot of war, centers on Pierre conceiving uh, conceiving a plan to assassinate Napoleon uh, as revenge for his uh, uh, efforts to take over Russia. So 
it's old and it's and it's also very new and uh, it also has the effect obviously it has a huge it's had an enormous political effect in the united states of completely isolating the president right the president of the united states has almost no ability or capacity to have any kind of life in which he can reach out and touch any other person without someone around him 24 7 uh it's the you know it's sort of the foundation of the white house bubble is the fact that so much time and effort and money is spent securing his person anyway i just i'm just rambling here so in in the way you know in the absence of any knowledge of what motivated the Shooter, I do want to highlight uh, an astounding fact, which is that since Abe was on the, you know, was were deemed to be a conservative, by which that meant that though he was very uh, pro-trade, uh, pro-international alliance, which in, in Japanese terms would be would not make him a conservative, because Japan has a very, you know, has an isolationist history. Um, pro-alliance pro you know uh wanted to make uh, deals with other countries uh pro stimulus pro stimulus and pro um remilitarization to some extent i mean this is this is called remilitarization but uh, the idea that uh japan's commitment to pacifism which appears you know after it being the most violent country in the world and 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 one of the worst uh Im imperialist uh warmongering oppressors the world has ever seen from the 30s to the fall of the regime in 1945, um, that he wanted Japan to start taking a role in its own defense and to marshal some form of defense against particularly North Korea, but also potentially China. And um, the Associated Press in its first uh, piece about Abe's death, um, published this absolutely astonishing broadside against him uh it's not bylined uh it appeared on npr that's where i saw it i clicked on the npr on on the tweet that npr put up about it because it described him as an arch conservative or an ultra conservative ultra conservative ex-japan leader shinzo abe shot it said and i was like arch ultra conservative whatever so the the AP piece, as it read uh, at 6.40 this morning, said former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, a divisive arch-conservative, and one of his nation's most powerful and influential figures has died after being shot during a campaign speech. Um, we go down uh, a little bit in the piece. Um, he told reporters when he resigned as prime minister that it was gut-wrenching to leave many of his goals unfinished. He had to because he had a heart condition, uh, and, excuse me, an ulcerative colitis, and it had really flared up, and he you know, was worried he was going to die. So he spoke of his failure to resolve the issue of Japanese abducted years ago by North Korea, territorial dispute with Russia, and a revision of Japanese, Japan's war-announcing constitution that Japanese were abducted years ago by North Korea, literally seized and kidnapped and brought to North Korea to teach Jap Japanese to North Korean spies. And there are hundreds of them, and they're still there. And, you know, just to give you an idea of how, of how psychotic that, uh, the North Korean regime is, and this was a major policy issue for him. He couldn't get it resolved. But he also wanted to revise Japan's war-renouncing constitution. And here's what, uh, what the AP says. That last goal was a big reason he was such a decisive figure. His ultra-nationalism riled the Koreas and China, and his push to create what he saw as a more normal defense posture angered many Chinese. Abe failed to achieve his cherished goal of formally rewriting the U.S.-drafted pacifist constitution because of poor public support. Um, Abe was a political blue blood who was groomed to follow in the footsteps of the grandfather, former Prime Minister Nobusuke Kishi. His political rhetoric often focused on making Japan a normal and beautiful nation with a stronger military and bigger role in international affairs. So he is, he built a rock solid grip on power. Um, this is how you talk about somebody who was just murdered in broad daylight. Ultra nationalist enraged the Koreas. First of all, 
enraging South Korea and enraging North Korea, if indeed he, I mean, he enraged South Korea for a specific reason, but not the same reason. I mean, it's just jaw-dropping. This is the number one news source in the world. That's the Associated Press. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just arranged and sort of parochial because you're, as you said earlier, you're imposing, you know, domestic political categories on uh on a polity and on an individual where they don't really fit. So just trying to, as a heuristic to navigate this, this breaking news event that you don't really understand to try to throw that in there is just bizarre. Why? It doesn't add to the copy. It detracts from the copy. It makes it less comprehensible what actually happened here. And because we don't know what actually happened here to a degree that we can actually inform readers about it. Why would you even, why would you put that in there? Why would an editor let that slip? But I'm, I'm, I'm guessing this was um, at least drawn from some prepared material, like for a, an, an obit in advance, right? Right. So this was this was going to be the, the, the their take on him, regardless of when and how. how but even he, that's he weird got. because the, yeah, reinterpret- the reinterpretation of Article 9, which is this pacifist clause in the Japanese Constitution, is kind of controversial because every American president since Obama has been trying to get them to reinterpret it so that they could deploy self-defense forces. Japan has like the ninth biggest military on the planet. Like it's not a, it's not a def- it's, defenseless country. Um, oh, but and, it's also that it has the third largest economy on the planet. So something like that. Not, um, yeah. So yeah, this has been an American policy to try to get Japan to engage in its region militarily, not, not offensively, but militarily for the better part of a decade, perhaps longer. So, it, and by a bipartisan initiative. So even that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it may, may make a lot of sense in the context. You're saying it's in an American political context, but it's very possible this was drafted by the Tokyo Bureau of the AP, which could be full of pacifistic leftists who don't like Abe because he was, you know, uh, c- because he adopted certain types of American ideas like uh, using uh, uh, tax cuts to stimulate uh, an economy that had been in the doldrums for 20 years when he took when he took uh, power for the second time in 2012, um, the great stagnation, which uh, he said upon his departure from office, he hadn't ended, but he had chipped away at. And I think that's self-evidently the case. Anyway, um, he, uh, he deserved better. Uh, anybody deserves better uh, than being uh, insulted and derided with hostile adjectives two hours after his death. It's really shameful. And I hope the Associated Press gets 100,000 letters, uh, you know, uh, enraged letters. Noah, you said that uh, NPR had had deleted its, the tweet in which which they called him an ultra conservative or an arch conservative or something like that, right? They called him an arch conservative, a divisive arch conservative in the deleted tweet. What I saw that I suppose replaced it was ultra nationalist. So, you know, a difference of degrees, I suppose. Again, it's a very bizarre thing to call somebody who is as internationalist as Abe an arch nationalist. You know, nationalist looks inward uh, and uh, Japan has a, the mo- most nationalist country on earth by many, by many uh, reckonings, you know, uh, from the, you know, 1600s to the late 19th century, um, you know, would kill anybody who tried to set foot on, uh, set foot on Japanese soil. Uh, I think from, there are still COVID protocols that restrict even tourism in Japan right now. Uh, a friend of mine oh, actually went right. to work, went to work in Japan two or three months ago. Uh, and uh, yeah, like he had to sit in the airport. He had to take a PCR test and sit and be in an area in the airport for six hours until they cleared him with the PCR test. And um, so unfriendly are they to tourists that they set up this area, but they did not provide them with any seats. So yeah, so ju- they were all tourism. standing there in a corridor for six hours. You know, everybody who got off a plane had to be tested and wait for the PCR results without a chair. Uh, so tourism after only having gotten off in, a plane. Yeah, tourism. Yeah, you know, work visas are a little different, but tourism only resumed in, on June one, as far as I'm reading right here. Right. So it's you know way behind the rest of the world in that regard. But the, the nationalism uh, charge, I think, the the thing I saw cited 
might have been in the Times obit, um, was that he often spoke of wanting to of, of Japan as a beautiful and strong country, and wasn't and didn't apparently um, sufficiently um, apologize uh, for for World War II. Well, it was a very specific thing, right? That he would not. Uh, he denied the severity of the problem of comfort women, the women from South Korea, from Korea, who had been, uh, you know, either used as prostitutes in Korea and Manchuria for the for the invading forces, or actually sent to Japan to work in brothels. Um, and uh, he was apparently insufficiently regretful publicly about this uh, obvious horrific and horrendous uh, crime. Um, I think saying, you know, basically saying that, I don't know, but I, I, I don't know enough to talk about it, but I mean, that was, that was his, that was his sin. And it, you know, it was probably a significant sin of a certain kind um note by the way that that is not what he is lambasted for in this associated press editorial he's so lambasted for his posture on defense which is noah says is something that was welcomed by, by obama and by trump both um so uh there is something um, it's not like this is just, you know, speaking truth to power and not observing these, you know, delicate niceties of not speaking ill of the dead in the immediate wake of their murder. Um, because, you know, you can go back and look at how they eulogized Castro. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's not it's not yeah. like they, they're above lionizing these figures when they divisive figures when they serve their ideological purposes. But I think Abe makes an important point. It's a point about media bias period, which is that whatever this was, was deemed to be acceptable. Uh, you know, a year before this was actually published, this was the language that was going to be used in the obit in which he died, but not by, but not by assassination. So it didn't occur to them. I'm saying you can't even do this in the wake of his murder. So it didn't occur to them that maybe you shouldn't do it this way in the wake of his death by natural causes either. Just throwing adject throwing nasty adjectives his way as opposed to describing the policies that he um, pushed or adopted that were controversial, which is, of course, totally acceptable. And what's, what makes an obituary can make an obituary a great piece of writing that you can illuminate the problems and controversies of our time in the obituaries of great men by by explaining what they did and how this set something off and how it's and what they how they responded uh you can learn a great deal from a really good obituary and you can learn what character assassination is from a bad one and this is obviously a really really bad one we're gonna shift gears and talk about the jobs numbers. But before I talk about the jobs numbers, I want to say you would understand the jobs numbers a lot better where they fit into our current economic position and where they fit in in terms of the history of this country's approach on macroeconomics and economic policy. If you get your, if you had gotten yourself that copy of David Bonson's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths that I've been talking to you about, David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N, uh, runs uh, an investment advisory firm with $3.5 billion under management. He knows wherever he speaks. He is somebody who brings uh, an enormous reservoir of uh, knowledge relating to economics, theology, political science, and political philosophy, and he brings them all to bear in this book, which is set up as a primer, a daily devotional, let's say, to the free market, human liberty, uh, and human flourishing, individual topics uh, in, in economic thought, ballasted by great quotes from economists, theologians, and thinkers. It's a, it's a one-stop shop for understanding uh, the West and its economy. That's David Bonson's There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Please go to Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever you get your fine books, and get it today. So, Jobs number is out, wildly better than anybody uh, anticipated, about 300 and 
70,000 new jobs, which is about 100,000 more than the analysts were predicting. And here's what's interesting about that. That sounds good, right? It's great. Uh, except it's gonna, it's it's now going to almost assuredly compel the Fed next week to raise uh, uh, interest rates uh, by, uh, as they say, 75 basis points or three quarters, a full three quarters of a point, which will make it, I think, their fifth or sixth such increase this year and the second in a row of three quarters of a point. We are now heading into uh, the highest interest rates we've had probably in 20 years. Uh, you know, it's funny cause I got my first mortgage in the year 2000, uh, which is what, 22 years ago at eight and a half percent fixed. And I thought that was fine. It didn't even occur to me that that was a problem. You know, I'm now, <laughs> I'm now paying under 4% fixed now. And so, you know, I look at anything, you know, at a number higher than five as though, you know, as though the world has ended. And, you know, when I was in my teens in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, interest rates were at 18, 19 percent uh, and pushed up to 20 percent uh, by Paul Volcker at one point. And so, you know, um, the Fed is finally making aggressive moves to deal with this stuff, but it is going to hurt. It's really, really, really going to hurt. I mean, this so the Atlanta, I think it was a. Uh... Yeah, so that's the Atlantic Fed's GDP forecast was for a 2.1% decline, which would signal the start of a risk of that we're in a recession right now. Uh, that's so the second quarter GDP. Q2, which comes out at the end of the month. So this 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 number jobs number suggests there's a lot of economic activity going on out there, <clears throat> which would undermine this projection, right? I mean, I don't know how this squares with inflation. Maybe inflation is eating up a lot of these wages, these new wages, this new economic activity. But People are spending, people are hiring. And uh, so throws cold water on the idea that we're in inflation right now or a recession right now, right? Right, no, I mean, I, I mean, what the Fed is doing is attempting, oddly enough, it's attempting to, to uh, stop overheating. Yeah, I mean, that's a separate issue from what the Fed's gonna do with, uh, with interest rates. Right, well, I mean, but I mean, it isn't really because, you know, the, the, job market job creation job growth is both uh, inflationary it is both a sign of a strong economy which is weird because it doesn't look like our economy is that strong um and certainly uh so it, it looks like that but it's also uh you know is a sign of um you know upward pressures on on everything because people have money and they will be able to buy things and that puts upward pressure on prices and all of that. So, uh, well, this is the polit so this is the political problem. Tony Fratto who's a GOP strategist has been saying this for three or four months now that the Biden administration could come out today and say, this is the hottest jobs market in the history of the planet. It's been the hottest jobs market forever. And you should go out and get the job you want and have the salary you want and enjoy life. But they're not going to do that. They're going to go out and say, well, this is a good jobs number, but, in the, you, you know, inflation's terrible. Inflation's destroying everything and it's ruining your life. And that's true. Um, it would be sort of, I suppose, tone deaf to avoid the elephant in the room, the inflationary pressure, your reduced purchasing power. But as a political matter, he's certainly correct, right? Why would they, why wouldn't they emphasize the positive here? and just sort of look past, for now at least, for a, a news cycle, uh, the inflation that's eating up all your wages. But as regards jobs, this has gotten us back to, to where we were, where the private sector was uh, pre-pandemic. So uh, this, is, this is still sort of been all the, the getting back up to speed, um, right. which, which makes me sort of curious about uh, sort of let, let's wait and see what happens from that, from this point on now. Right. Well, look, I mean, just to give you guys a sense of the disconnection between the economic, you know, the, the macroeconomics and let, let me just put it this way. Okay. I'm looking at a chart here, which is, uh, 
Intra, uh, inflation and GDP growth. Okay, so in 1979, uh, in 1979, the unemployment rate was at six percent. Right now we're at 3.6%. So it was almost double what it was, although that was considered re- was not considered wildly high because a lot of the work you know women were not in in the workforce in the numbers that they are now and so you know four percent was considered full and full employment so six percent in 1979 we had a uh growth for annual growth rate of 3.2 percent which we would be thrilled to have now but interest rates were at 13.3 percent why? Because 78, we had had 5.5% inflation. We had 3.2% in 1979. So these things, you know, the stronger an economy is, often the more significant the, the upward pressure might be on inflation unless you take steps to keep the economy from overheating, which is what the Fed is now trying to do, even though our, you know, uh, our Overall, economic growth seems bad. A lot of this is all incredibly confusing. Like we shouldn't be having massive job growth when the economy contracted in the first quarter. Doesn't these things don't jibe? So it's possible that the numbers are all skewed and that things are being mismeasured, or that our economy has now gotten so complicated that we don't really understand what the interplay of these factors or that while job growth is high, job participation might be decreasing, which apparently it is according to this report. It's all very confusing, uh, but it all comes at a time when the largest, more people are saying that things are going badly with the American economy today uh, than have ever said so before in the history of polling. Um, clearly, that's not true. In other words, like things aren't worse today than they were in January or February of 2009. They're just not. People lost 30% of their home values and their stock market, you know, their, their wealth. Uh, the unemployment rate, you know, was going way up economy was in shambles, obviously much worse. But the perception is that things are bad, which also contributes to terrible, terrible things. And then you do have this fact, which is that apparently people are now, when you ask, when pollsters ask people what is their number one concern without giving them a list, ask them to name something specifically without giving them a list, Four in 10 people say inflation. Think about what that means. In other words, you're saying to people, what's what's the worst, what's the biggest problem facing the country? And then you don't say, is it Russia? Is it, uh, you know, voting? Is it uh, Trump? Is it January 6th? Is it inflation? They just ask it like that. And four out of 10 people say inflation. That means <laughs> inflation is not this hasn't been served up to them on a platter by the news and then they're just saying saying it if they were they would say january 6th probably this is a real thing and like i like i keep keep saying on this podcast like i lived through the last stagflation you know no you didn't abe you did but you were very little there's nothing like it you don't there's no there's no experience like a stack there's no experience like a stagflation you know, people are driven to spend money this week because they know it's going to be worth less next week. Well, this is the difference between inflation and uh, jobs numbers in terms of impact. So 350,000 people benefited from, from job growth. 330 million have been hurt from inflation. That's I- a very important point. I think it well said, because if you actually think about it, if the unemployment rate was 3.6% last month, and it's 3.6% this month, that means that 96% of all people who could be employed were already employed. They do not benefit from jobs growth. 
I mean, the country does, and we want people to have jobs who don't have jobs, but no person who has a job is positively impacted by somebody they don't know in some other state getting a job. In fact, you could say maybe they're hurt by it because if it puts upward pressure on inflation, it cuts into their the value of their paycheck. How weird is that? Think about that for a minute. It's a terrible, but you know, it, it's not that it's a zero sum game, but it's there's something going on there. Um, uh, politically, uh, Democrats continue to try to talk themselves into the idea that things are really turning around for them. So uh, there is a um, uh, navigator research helps shape the debate for progressives on the issues that matter most to Americans. So it is a liberal to leftist group uh, run by a guy named Simon Rosenberg. Um, Amazingly enough, it's the biggest sugar high you've ever seen. New polling finds a 24-point drop in GOP favorability with independents and 10 points overall. GOP favorability has fallen 10 points since May 23rd. Okay? 72% of Democrats are more likely to vote now. This is not a typical midterm, says Simon Rosenberg of Navigator. The anti-MAGA majority, which voted in record numbers in the last two elections, is getting ready to do it again this time. Lots of data showing a new bluer 2022 election. Um, 63% supported national law to protect a woman's right to an abortion, plus 30 with Indies. Uh, okay. I, I, I don't want to say that they're, you know, the data is dirty because I have no reason to think that it's, it's dirty. It's a thousand, uh, thousand interviews of registered voters. Um, but uh, what? Come on. It's also electorally irrelevant, um, you know, just to use a, a recent example that floated across my transom is um, there was this effort on among leftists or Democrats, not leftists, Democrats on Twitter to convince themselves that the favorability numbers in the Ohio Senate race will define the outcome of that race because uh, J.D. Vance is viewed less favorably in one poll is viewed less favorably but to the tune of nine points than his rival. Tim Ryan. Um, but in head-to-head numbers, J.D. Vance is competitive, if not leading, Tim Ryan. It doesn't matter whether he's beloved. He exists as an alternative to democratic governance in Washington, which is united, which is presiding over conditions that the American people utterly detest. They might not like Republicans. They might not trust Republicans, but they're miserable and are willing to willing to exact revenge against the party in power. That you know, favorability numbers are a red herring. We think. I mean, so there are two ways of looking at this. One is the House races. The other are the Senate and gubernatorial races, right? Because the House races um, will tend to have m- maybe national shifts. It doesn't really matter, right? As the parties have gotten more uh, polarized and voters have gotten more polarized, it matters whether you have an R or a D after your name and not what your name is. Senate races are a little different, a little better. Uh, gubernatorial races also personality matters character matters it's run statewide the ads that are run are all uh, you know focused on the person um and there are these problematic uh, republican candidates herschel walker in particular in georgia who was running five or six or seven points behind david kemp who was the gubernatorial is the governor is the gubernatorial candidate in his own party um that number has been consistent over the course of like six weeks or something like that So clearly people are making a definitive choice to say that they will vote for David Kemp, but will not vote for Herschel Walker or don't want to vote for Herschel Walker. So we have a real example there. But um, this kind of thing where you say, oh, don't worry, voters are really, you know what, they they're all with us. They 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 want a national law on abortion. They're they don't like Republicans. And there's an anti-MAGA coalition that's coming out to, you know, to save the day. MAGA is not on the ballot. I, 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 individual candidates are MAGA, and you can, and everyone's trying to make the case that the Republican Party has now gone MAGA. But 
MAGA is not on the ballot. I mean, if Blake Masters wins in Arizona, wins the senatorial nomination in Arizona, MAGA will be on the ballot for him because that's all he is. But obviously, Dr. Oz is not just MAGA. By the way, neither is J.D. Vance, no matter what his positions are. Vance has a whole Ohio story to tell that he told the book that sold 4 million copies and, and did well as a, as a movie on Netflix. Like, he's, a, he's got an independent standing that can cut through some of that stuff. So I don't know. Uh, but I just, you know, if you were a Republican strategist, I think you would actually be happy to see Democrats trying to convince themselves that things are going their way because it means that they will not run uh, the right kind of campaign to succeed in November. Well, I mean, even if we, if we take the, the, the poll at its sort of most uh, uh, legitimate, um, might it not just in the end mean what size the red wave will be as opposed to uh, actually doing anything beneficial electorally for, for the Democrats? It's a Noah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I think this is all wish casting on the part of Democrats that um, you don't have, but look, what did you say the, the right, right track, wrong track numbers? It's like 80, 20 on the roughly. economy. Yeah. 89, no, right track, right track I think it's, I think it's 89, 11. Yeah, it's the st state of the country. Um, that's just apocalyptic. There's no getting away from that. And back to Tony Fratto's point is they are so consumed with worry about the state of the, the economy and views on the economy that they really don't know how to polish that apple. Um, and they don't feel like they can ignore it anymore. They tried in a very uh, sort of... Uh, uh, haphazard way to insist that this was a transitory phenomenon and then to as in 2021 to you know highlight the 13 cent savings that you had on individual uh, items and then a, a two cent decline in gas prices and I think they got burned by how humiliating that was so they've stopped trying to ignore inflation but they can't massage it so now they're just highlighting inflation without having any way to ease the pain of it reminding everyone of the existence of this phenomenon that's robbing you of your purchasing power. And, and then all of a sudden trying to convince themselves that social issues will, will save them. Um, it is all just bargaining. It's so redolent of 1992. I can't even tell you having written a book about, you know, the decline and fall of the first Bush white house that was published in 93 huge fights inside the white house about what it was that Bush was supposed to acknowledge about the condition of the economy. And the idea being that, you know, you wanted to be like Churchill. If you want to be like Churchill, you, you level with the American. You tell them what's going on about the pain and the suffering and the this and the And then others saying, no, no, you got to be positive. You got to be positive. You got to highlight the positive news. You know, the recession was only two months long. What are you talking about? Don't. And, you know, you can never resolve this. The problem is that when things stop going your way politically, they stop going your way politically. And, and when that happens, Almost everything you do has to be damage mitigation rather than forward marching because, and very few people in politics know how to do damage mitigation. I mean, it, it, cause it's depressing, you know, I mean, it's like, and you can't show until everything is over that you mitigated anything, you know, that you sort of succeeded in sort of um, slowing down the other side's march toward victory. Uh, and nobody really knows how to do damage mitigation in politics because politics is so incredibly fluid that this week everything can change in a heartbeat. So why would you even strategize? It's um, but when you're when you have a bad hand to play, you just have a bad hand to play. You know, it's there's no there's no getting around it. But it's interesting always to see ideological partisans try to throw date play data games to try to make sure that their own side doesn't go wobbly on the issues that they care about and pushes the issues that they care about because a, they believe that those issues are popular and B because they want those issues to remain front and center. And, you know, if, if, if it doesn't work this year, it'll work next time, or it'll just, you know, continue to control the conversation. That's what's going on there with those navigator 
numbers, which again, I'm not saying aren't real, but there is a very important point to be made about polling right now that Ariel Edwards Levy, who is at uh, CNN and others have been making, which is that there is a response problem in polling. It's a different kind of response problem from the, it's a little bit different from the conservatives don't answer the phone or they oversample liberals. It is that it's so hard to get anybody to answer the phone. And uh, people who don't hate the media or don't hate polling are more likely to participate in your survey. The, sur- the, the people who are doing the surveys are not biasing the results. They are just getting people who are more interested in taking surveys to take surveys. And there is a overwhelming... Yeah, go ahead. And that's not representative of the American population at this point. Right. And there's all sorts of evidence that overwhelmingly those people lean to the left, I, I, which I don't understand. It's not so simple to explain something like that, but they know it's a thing. You know, Charles Franklin, who is the pollster at the University of Wisconsin, talks about this. As I said, Ariel, who's a polling analyst, CNN talks about this like it's a it's a real thing so you know you need to kind of take numbers like those navigator numbers with a grain of salt because nobody because they are getting an unrepresentative sample that is passionate it's not just they're unrepresentative they're also actually lean passionately toward one side or the other uh Noah tell us about what's going on with your book I am so sick of the sound of my own voice. Okay. I can't even tell you. Uh, so we're in the, the thick of the of the book tour. Um, had doing a lot of podcasts. I did Fox News for the first time in four years last night. Uh, did a Morning Joe hit the other day, which did pretty well. I'm going to be talking next week with Newt Gingrich, Dan Crenshaw, um, and, you know, talking about the, the themes in the book. It's been very well received so far. I've got one negative review but it is a very perfunctory exercise in box checking to the point that I'm not even against it. I kind of enjoy, you need, you need a rotten tomato or two, you know, to just to accentuate the audience score, which has so far been very good. Um, so yeah, we're, we're pushing it out there and I'm having a good time, you know, my, my self-deprecation aside, I'm having a great time talking with everybody and, and making the rounds and meeting people and talking about the themes in the book. And uh, it's been really enjoyable. Uh, okay, so Noah, thanks I'm going to give you some, I got to give you some coaching here. There's a sure. little coaching. All right. On, on selling the book. Sure. Don't call it the book. <laughs> Say the rise of the new Puritans. Fighting here back I am. I've been talking about the rise of the new Puritans. My book, the rise of the new Puritans, because people need to go to that search engine and type in rise of the new Puritans or Noah Rothman would do, do as well. But or fighting the book back is against called progressives war on fun. The rise, but they can't, they don't search for the subtitle. They search for the rise of the new Puritans. I wrote the rise of the new Puritans to highlight the progressives war on fun. All right. That's example. good. I Thank like you. that one. I am writing and, that down. Thank you. Okay. Okay. I like the so rise of the, rise of the new Puritans. Puritans. No Rothman. Go order it. Go buy it at your bookstore this weekend. When you have fun going out there, doing fun things. On a beautiful summer weekend. Abe, you got any plans? No, nothing exciting. Okay. That's that's to, that that's to try to I get a little to wait. I had to wait for that. You yeah. had to wait for you to unmute to say nothing exciting. <laughs> okay. Uh how about you, John? What are you doing? And the only plan I have is to see the the Thor movie. That's the only plan oh, I have yeah. on the books uh, at the moment. Um you know, the we arms of uh, the summer. We didn't talk about the end of Stranger Things. Hey, did you finish Stranger Things? I finished. Okay, so I just want to say, once again, very important point I need to make here. So anti-communist. It's crazy how anti-communist this is. Like, the, the, the Soviet regime is so villainous, and the Ruskies are so terrible. Fascinating. You know, by the way, the U.S. government's not so good either. I mean, there's a there's a military is torturing a guy to get information out of him. And, you know, there's it's not it's um, it's got a Rand Paul quality, maybe, <laughs> let's say, or, you know, something like that. But, uh, but there's very, no bullshit very the equivalent of Paul Reiser. 
The Bulls. We never saw the Bolshevik equivalent of Paul Reiser, did we? If he exists, he's not featured. That's right. Anyway, so uh, but it is crazy, crazy anti-communist, almost incomprehensible. The conclusion we were talking about yesterday. You don't know where these these battles between the sort of this alt world, these alt world monsters, and the people are are they taking place in the real world? Are they taking place in the new the other world called the upside down or are they taking place in somebody's head we have no we can't make uh hard to make head or tail out of it in part because the 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 idea here is that the upside down is seeping into the real world but yeah it was very hard to make like communism like communism itself that's right but um yeah i i i can look having seen the the entirety of it now i i still think this was the worst season okay uh easily Okay, and uh, the boys on uh, Amazon la- final episode just came out last night. This is an anti-American show. This mm-hmm. is a totally anti-American show, but it's so good. Like this is, it's like 1970s cinema. There was no such thing as a pro-American movie in the 1970s. But if you liked movies, that was the best decade for movies. This is the crisis of being conservative and consuming popular culture. Yeah, but put a man, good word in the for boys. Patton, huh? Put a good word in for Patton. Right. But Patton was 1970. So you can just say that was like, that was, that was a sort of weird hinge. It was after it was all the counterculture stuff and everything had an unhappy ending because that was how bad America was then and all of that. Anyway. Uh, but it's really good and incredibly violent, and really dirty. So don't, don't watch it on my account, please. I'm sorry. I praised it because don't let your kids see it. It's so gross. And if you don't like gross and perverted sexual stuff, you shouldn't watch it either. But if you but if you can tolerate that, we're going to be amused by it. It's um, it's maybe the best show that Amazon has ever made. Anyway. We'll be done with this now. Have a great weekend. Christine will be back on Monday. As I said, we will not be here Thursday, Friday or Monday of next week, Uh, Thursday, Friday of next week and Monday of the following week. So don't email us to complain then. I'm preparing you now. Thanks for listening. For Abe and Noah and the Absent Christine, I'm John Bot Horitz. Keep the candle burning.